Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, so I guess the best place to start would be the start, really. If you could tell us about where you were born, where you grew up, and your sort of family life early on. Um, I was born in St Mary's Hospital. It's just off Oxford Road where the Curry Mile is now. And um, I was born in that hospital, and we, we lived in Longside until about the age of seven years old. My mum had a shop, and... In those days, you give that HP away, you know, the credit, and nobody paid it back. You know? Right. <laughs> so suddenly we moved from a, a sort of semi-detached house to the old Coronation Street things. I remember when I was seven years old, I had a little cool, what I thought was a cool suede zip-up jacket, walking down the street, this place called Dewar Street, and it was all gangs on the corners. I thought it was different from, you know, the little garden we had and all that. What so, sort of gangs, like Teddy Boys, Mods? What sort well, of? all kinds of street urchins. Right. Then. We're talking like early 60s, you know, probably about 1960 or something like that. So yeah. this is just before a lot of that mm. music explosion kicked off. There was Teddy Boys, because my right. cousin lived in the same street, and he was a Teddy Boy, you know. He had the Winkle Pickers and the Grease Back Air. Yeah. And a few of his mates used to come round. And I remember walking down and seeing all these gangs and thinking, whoa, you know. You've got to look after yourself around here, you know. <laughs> so you realise that at an early age, you had to become street well, smart. Well, absolutely. You started looking at all the people on different corners, you know. And it made you streetwise in a way, you know. 
Soon got to know all these, those people and all the different gangs in the various streets. And it was great, really, you know. Sometimes they'd get a bit heavy at bonfire night because they'd all try and nick each other's wood and stuff, you know. <laughs> Come round throwing bricks at each other and all that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> so you had to get rough and ready fast. Absolutely, yeah. It toughened you up that way. But I loved that street because you knew, it was like a Coronation Street thing, you knew everybody in the street. So that, Everyone would leave their doors open, like that kind of community. All that kind of thing. Women um, doing the... Um, the steps with the, these what they call donkey stones, you know, they like like brown stone the step or a white stone, and make it all clean every Saturday, you know. That was kind of weird. And then it got trampled on <laughs> after that. Um, but it was that kind of close knit community, you know. Which somewhat so I liked it. Me and a a friend of mine who became a brain surgeon, they said about me and him, you'd never get anywhere, you lads hanging around the corner, this guy used to say. And we wrote a street newspaper about all the characters in the street, you know. <laughs> Amazing. At a, yeah, very young age. I don't know really where that came from, but it was like we characterised all the people in the street. So, so you sort I, of had like an eye for yeah reading society and situations and characters. Yeah, at an early age. Started to realise you had that perception and observation of people, you know, beyond. But they realised we could see, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could see, you know, there was one guy we called T-shirt man because he always wore a T-shirt and the characteristics about him and different other, all, the, all the other characters in the street, you know. So that became fascinating, really, you know. It's like um, there was all interesting and different, you know. An old browbeat going to work and back, but on the corner was a pub and they'd all be in there playing dominoes and stuff and, and the smell of the beer... And, uh, and cigarettes. And cigarettes, it was fantastic, isn't it? That looked fascinating also, you know. As a little kid looking, Saturday night you could hear in the other, one of the other rooms people singing out a tune, you know. People kind of, you know, wailing, I did it my way, all that kind of stuff. So what age did Which music really was like come a in? precursor of punk in a way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Punk yeah. singers. Yeah, Anybody yeah, could yeah, get absolutely. up on a Saturday night drunk. Um, well, what happened was my cousin... Um, it was a teddy boy, he, you know, he'd be blasting out in the street, Little Richard and Chuck Berry and all them rock and roll records, which I thought was great, you know. But then all of a sudden, like, it was like 1962 and the Beatles came along. And it was like, wow, the Beatles are this new thing, they're cool, you know. So yeah. were you a Beatles guy as opposed to Stones? Because uh, of being Northern and... Well, both really, both. yeah. But it was the Beatles that first sort of kicked it all off. Yeah. And then the Stones and the Kinks and the Who, just, you know, weeks and weeks it seemed after, you know, not long after. So it was all that sort of 60s stuff had come in, you know. And this is what, just as you're, like, hitting teens? Hitting the teens, yeah. So right age, right time. Right age, yeah. You know, when the Beatles first brought Twist and Shout out and... That's the sound of Camden. Love Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Camden, folks, yeah. Um... So, yeah, I was right for that then. You know, I'd be, um, would it be, uh, yeah, I'd be like five or six, going on seven years old. So, it, you know, it hit you, to, you know, because they used to play all comedy records on the radio and very old kind of regular things for the armed forces and stuff like that. What are we talking? On, on, on like Tony radios. Hancock or? Um, no, I mean, Free comedy that. records that George Martin did, you know. Okay. You know, Bernard Cribbins. 
There I was digging this old, all them kind of records with a little story, you know, Charlie Drake, please miss the custom. And what I realised later, when you listen to the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper, half of those sound effects were almost on, on them early comedy records, you know. It was almost like they exchanged it and put the Beatles in instead of, you know, in some right. ways. But at the time when Sergeant Pepper came out, he didn't realise that. So, I mean, going back, um, it, there was a girl across the road, and uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, it was his sister, she was about 16 or something. She had long blonde hair. And I remember going across and she had like the record play with the first Beatles album and the first Bob Dylan album. And I remember drying her hair in the mirror with a hairdryer, which I'd never seen, you know. The Russians in the late 50s had put a Sputnik out in space, which it reminded me of something like that, a hairdryer, you know, because you all dried your hair with a towel in those days, you know. Talking all mod cons. Yeah, yeah. but it's it, the swinging sixes we we're about to hit with hair dryers and everything else. You know. um, so watching her dry her hair and then listening to the first Beatles album and then the first Bob Dylan album, I thought, you know, you've got the melodies and the tunes of, um, of, of uh, uh, you know, the harmonies and stuff of um, the Beatles, but also there was this weird voice I thought I don't know what it's telling me but it is telling me something this even though I'm at this young age and what he's saying somehow important yeah yeah and that resonated with me I thought that's weird you know she said this is Bob Dylan I was like yeah Bob Dylan wow and somehow it did it it did resonate somewhere you know I thought I don't know what he's exactly saying but he's saying something to me you know and um, I mean they're still trying to work out what he's saying to this day you know so I became a big Dylan fan as well. So those two things, really, watching her dry her long blonde hair and listening to those two records sort of crystallised the future of my life back in 62 or 3 or whenever, you know, around that time. I didn't realise that at the time, but in that kind of moment, that's what happened. They also had, like, a Spanish guitar, and I remember plucking the string, and it resonated in your heart and soul, and I Jesus, you know, that was kind of like a first sexual experience, watching her dry her hair and plucking the string of the guitar. And it's, you know, making your heart flutter in many ways, you know, one, because of the instrument, and two, watching her do that, you know. Shouldn't become, like, sexually aware, I suppose. And also getting in the swing in that sort of 60s thing, you know, this wave of bands coming and stuff. So I was right for that, you know. Then the next thing, another guy had a scooter with the Union Jack side panels, and he he could never kickstart the the kickstart had gone, so he was up forever running down the street with it, and it worked, you know. But that was another thing. I thought, wow, I want one of those as well, you know. Instant cool. Yeah, it was like that's really cool, a scooter, you know. So as you got a bit older, you know, you started to buy the Levi jeans, which were very rare then, and brogues and all that stuff. Because it took a lot to get all that kind of stuff, and then nobody really had any money. You know, he used to buy uh, for ten shillings the ordinary cheap jeans, you know. So you had to really go somewhere to get these new things called Levi's that you sat in the bath with. Yeah, I was reading that the fit. other day. Yeah. Strung to fit in the bathtub. Mm, mm. Right, right. And um, used to do that as well, thinking, "Oh, I better do it. Make sure they're right," you know. Because you don't want them, you know, loose and the cut not being right. Exactly. Then you you know, turn up and everyone's laughing at you, right? Like, to fit, it used to say. So yeah. it's like, yeah, well, if they fit to your body from that, that's pretty cool. 
So all that was going on. And, um, you know, watching the Elvis films, I thought, they're nice, but a bit simple. But when the Beatles films came out, you know, Hard Day's Night, my cousin took us uh, to Manchester Apollo to see Hard Day's Night. And that was life-changing, really, you know. It was meant to be the sort of first music video, wasn't it? Yeah, and there was, you know, this reality to it, you know. Yeah. And it's insight of looking at life in, you know, in a in a part jokey way, and in a kind of rock and roll being in a bad way, you know. So your mum and dad could tell you one things, and then school teachers could tell you another, but they couldn't tell you what was in the groove of the records and what was going on with his music, you know. And so you know, you locked into that, and suddenly, and you you know. You became a beetle and a stone and everything else, you know. You was hip, you was cool. It was like, wow, this is the new thing, you know. And um, when you had the money, you'd buy the clothes, you know. Suddenly you had an identity, you know. Everybody else around was, you know, either regular people or, you know, having to go to these horrible jobs and come home knackered every day, you know. Especially, right, in cities like Manchester around that time. Oh yeah, very I mean, working class. Still works down and, the road, and there was a coal mine up the road, all that kind of stuff, you know. And that's what most people's future was, right? Laid out for them. Exactly, you know. And that's what I thought my future would be. Really, I thought I can't, I can't see myself doing that. But you just got the feeling that that's what everybody does. There's no way out of here, really, you know. And did you then see music as the way out? Well, not really. No. I, well, it was a way out. It was something you loved and something you could escape to. You know, the the words, the poetry of the words and the music and everything. It's like, well, if you haven't got anything else, this gives you a great insight into life, you know. And like I say, if I had a Be- Beatles, there was like the jokey elements of looking at society in their way they did back on our day's night and stuff like that and help, you know. Um, so, you, you know, you had all that kind of thing. And then you had that, you know, and looking at Mick Jagger's face on Ready Steady Go and he's going, I'm the little red rooster. You just knew they were cool, you know. Whereas some of the other bands on there, you thought, he started to discern, like, the other ones ain't got it. Freddie and the Dreamers and all that, they're a bit of fun, but they ain't the Rolling Stones, you know. You started to, you know, uh, see who the hip ones are and what was cool and what they were saying and doing and stuff, you know. Whereas other ones didn't seem to have a conscious about that, yeah, know, a yeah. consciousness about it. It was a bit like they're up there singing and larking about or doing something, but it didn't mean any. It didn't seem to have any depth or substance, like the Rolling Stones or you know, like the Beatles and stuff. And um, television was, as well was the main means of commu- like of discovering music right mm. back then. Obviously, radio as well. But I guess when you saw these bands for the first time on TV, yeah. That was like a whole game changer as well, yeah, right? Absolutely, it was very powerful, you know. Like I say, I remember the fullness of Mick Jagger's head going, I'm the little red rooster and big lips, you know. Yeah. It's like, bloody hell, that's a bit weird and threatening and cool, you know. Um, and then, you know, you've got like the Who and the Kinks and all that coming around as well. So all that, you know, uh, was good grounding really, you know. And it also sort of introduced me to poetry, really, in a lot of ways, and the sound of words and all the rest of it, you know. Because those kind of bands, what they were singing about, you know, about the social environment and different things, you know, it, it, it gave you an insight and, you know, 
it charged you, charged your mind and soul with the, with that kind of stuff. So that kind of got you going, and you think, I can't be like the people down the road, you know. I mean, eventually, my folks used to say to me, you know, why aren't you married like little Johnny down the road? He's got two kids coming and all that. And I thought, that ain't for me. I don't know how I'm going to escape this, but, you know, I just can't see it. I don't want <laughs> I've it. I've got to. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, eventually, when I was 16, I think, I eventually got the scooters, you know, so you could drive around and pick up girls and take them a ride on the scooter. And that was good fun, you know. Eventually, I lost my scooter licence. I, I had bought an acoustic guitar for five pounds, and um, um, I lost my scooter licence, so I realised by the time I was 17, I was grounded to the pub. You know, a lot of the local guys went to the pub. Um, I mean, we'd moved by then to a modern estate because they'd knocked the, house, the, the lovely Terry, Terry's houses down and put people in all kinds of different places, you know. But I moved to this modern housing estate and um, um, had my scooters, then lost the licence and um, um, I got involved in stealing a scooter, which is a bad thing, so I spent a weekend in jail. <laughs> That's yeah, kind of, at 16? Yeah, at 17. 17. And that kind of, that was a heavy philosophical thing, really. It was quite profound, you know. Well, if you're growing up around this idea of freedom and chasing that, mm. obviously to be incarcerated is the exact opposite of that, isn't it? You've got exactly. four walls around you and no way yeah. out. It was a first indication of a, you know, existentialism about being a prisoner in your own mind, but I was suddenly a prisoner. You know, my body was a prisoner in itself. But I'm looking back, I'm kind of glad I did that now. It taught me right from wrong to a certain extent. And it also made me think, you know, what the hell am I doing with my life, you know? This is a drastic... Because they wanted to lock me up for weeks to blame me for all these other things I hadn't done, you know? OK, I'd made this simple mistake with some other guys, you know, but they were trying to fit me up with all this other stuff. But um, doing that, it was like... Well, you know, it had a profound effect, really. So wake up when call, I come yeah. out of the freedom again, it was only a weekend I stayed in there. Luckily, they let me out. Seemed like a lot longer, though, right? Oh, it did, yeah, you know. I'm not one to be incarcerated like that, you know. And I, I like to get out in the air and move about, you know. Um, so suddenly, I, I um, um, you know, I'd go to the local pub and then I'd start, you know, at time, start learning to write songs on this old acoustic guitar, this cheap guitar. That I'd bought it, you know, and um, every time I tuned up, which was very difficult to tune with pitch pipes, and, and by the time you got it more or less in tune, it struck a chord and it went out of tune, you know. But I, you know, it was so annoying. So what I used to start doing was like playing a couple of strings at times, you know. And I learned that you could play Beethoven's Ninth on some one string and a bit on another string, you know. Not your typical punk fodder. You know, I'm one and two strings, and I thought, that's Beethoven, man. I've cracked it. Yeah, cracked it. But what he did, what I realised was that eventually when the buzzcocks got going, we always there's a lot of little guitar motifs there. And I realised if I could afford a flash guitar at that age and that, those kind of things wouldn't have happened. So, really, that little guitar and, you know, 
in the face of adversity with it, that, but it wasn't that good. It should have been just hung on the wall as an ornament, you know. Um, that enabled me to, you know, learn a couple of strings and, and, and create riffs. Um, I mean, riffs that stick in your mind, not just like bending the notes of a blues riff, like little motifs in um, in a lot of the Buzzcock songs. So it just shows, you know, things like that. Um, There'd be no autonomy or... No, yeah, yeah, exactly. T- tell me about, were you at the famous, I wonder if we can kind of debunk the mythology surrounding this night, the famous gig at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester. You were there, right, but not in the Buzzcocks at that point. Yeah. Um, what do you remember from that night? Well, um, what I remember was I was, I had a band, well, I was um, rehearsing with a couple of guys around the corner and... Um, I'd started to write some songs, and also we did a couple of covers as well, you know. Just going to this guy's house, you know. But what I realised, they didn't mean it, you know. By this time, um, I mean, I did have a job, and my granddad was a trade union man, and we, we st- I was waiting for him, you know, he said, I've just got a call in here, and he came out and he said, I've got your job, and I thought, oh, no, I don't want the job. <laughs> That's the last thing I want. <laughs> but, but that job... That took me up because in sociology they say extreme occupations uh, were um, deep sea fishing and, 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 and steel work, you know. So it was a man's job, so I went in there, that toughened it up, you know. Because, you know, I had a big fight with a guy and that was twice my size, but they didn't bother me after that, you know. you got to watch out so for that guy, Steve. It, it, well, it give you a lot of strength, you know, you yeah. red hot metal and all that. Man, you couldn't find me half the time. I used to nip home at 11 o'clock and come back about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and go, where you been? I'm like, I was over there. Honest. Honest, yeah. But what that did, it got me enough money to buy um, a guitar and stuff eventually, you know. Um, so I, I started rehearsing with these guys and I realised they didn't mean it, you know. That job was just a temporary thing to get the guitars. I, I caused a strike at that job and... I refuse to do this job, you know, uh, the tire pump and this piecework thing that, you know, it's like you get extra money if you work twice as hard. And I thought, I don't want the extra money. I don't even want the money. I'm not into, I just want my freedom. You know? So I caused the strike and they all came out, you know. So I was amazed when I come back at, after you know, the, the, the dinner time. They're all out for you. I was like, wow, you know. It's your first taste of. Yeah, I'm a revolutionary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the managing director, they reinstated me because of that. And then the managing director called me in again upstairs to his office. And I said, you know, I still refuse to do what you want me to do there. So, um, you know, I'm fine, you know, I'm going home. I'm I'm going to put my coat and I'm never going to work again. You know? And I told the uh, trade union guy that and he thought I'd gone mad, you know. But I went home on the bus and I thought, I'm free, you know. I was 17 years old and thinking... What am I going to do now, you know what I mean? I'm free, but I'm fucked. Yeah. But I was just glad to have freedom, you know. Yeah. So, and you um, had that fire inside you then. Yeah. You knew there was I no thought, I don't know back. what's going to happen, but, you know, I can't be doing that all my life, you know. But you've got to remember, it, there was no chance of doing it. It, it. it seemed impossible to do music and that, you know. You had to go to London, you know, on your hands and knees with your tongue out begging somebody there. And, you know, it, it seemed a long way to do that, you know. So I um, started writing these songs, things like autonomy, you know, which meant self-rule and that and be autonomous. And the funny thing with that was I thought, I'll just go down the neck of the guitar, you know, a bizarre moment, apart from, you know, playing chords and stuff. 
I thought oh, that would be bizarre. I'd have a garden moment. And just went down the neck like that because I was listening to a German band called Can. Yeah. And I thought it's great fun, band. Funny they're going like, I love you, Mother Sky, and all that. So I ended up thinking I'll be an English guy pretending to be a German trying to sing English. I thought that was a pretty arty thing to do at the time, you know. I'm sitting in a weird place, you know. So that's what I did, and I've got a reel-to-reel tape of me doing that. Till Have eventually, you, you know, it has to go like, oh, I've got to sing it in my own voice a bit, you know. I can't keep going, I, I want you, I want you, you know. But that was the starting point for that song. And there's a lot of avant-garde moments in that song. Because my first song was Fast Cars, for, and I'd left the verses at home. There's how about a car crash you were in, right? Uh, kind. Or, well, it was. I'd read somewhere. I'd read a lot about Russia and Karl Marx and all that. I, I used to read a lot of books on, and um, I was reading about. You know, there's about eight cars in Russia at the time, and the opening line was going to be, "How in Russia do you come by car?" You know, nobody had one and all, and just the symbol of it being like, um, you know, a fast car. You know, it, it's like. Not for the cool people, really. A lot of them people that have got them have a different mentality, you know. Um, it's almost like a capitalist product. But it's as more well, like right? of a, you know, a phallic symbol, you know, yeah. for a fucking dick, really. Yeah. Is, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know what I mean? If, yeah, 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 you think you're flash with you type jag, but who are you really, you know? Because, you know, I'd been reading D.H. Lawrence and James Joyce and a lot of books, you know. So I was interested in people's hearts, minds and souls, not what kind of car they had, really, you know. And especially that kind of stuff, you know. You used, you, people I kind of knew had those seem to be like a bit of a jerk, really, you know. They, you couldn't have discourse with them about anything in life, in a way, apart from, you know, hey, I've got this car now. So, essentially, it started off like that. Anyway, I'd left my verses at home, and one of the early rehearsals, um, uh, Pete and Howard had stuff like boredom and um, orgasmatic. And I said, I've got this song, Fast Cars. I've left the verses at home. I've got the music and the chorus here. Let's have a flick through it. And then they kind of said, oh, we've got some verses here. So they wrote the verses to it then, you know. But that was my first song on the first Buzzcocks album. But I think it was was also the death knell of a... I think that's why Howard DeVoto left. Oh, really? Oh, well, it was timely. I mean, he said he was leaving. All right, there it is. There we go. (laughs) Well, he was, um, you know, we'd done Spiral Scratch. um, Can we go into that EP very quickly? Because I used to collect records, and this is kind of my way into discovering punk, really, was through vinyl collecting. And I went into a record store in Exeter one day, and the guy knew what I was into, and he said, something's come in today that you'll absolutely love. You might not have heard of it, but he picked it up, and it was... Spiral Scratch, and he was Ooh. telling me the story behind it that you, I guess, self-financed it, and it was the first time ever a yeah. UK band had done that. Yeah. Own label, 16,000 copies, was it, original run? I think it was 1,000 originally, oh, wow. and then it went on to 16,000. Right, right. And then eventually, I think Rough Trade took over the, the business of it. But what it was, it seemed as a, a, on the one hand, a stroke of genius, and on the other hand, it was a stroke of necessity. Because it was like, this is the most uncommercial form of music that we were doing, it, it seemed at the time. And no record company was signing up and all that. You know, we didn't consider it, but it was like, we need to go in the studio and make, let's hear what we sound like. 
And it was like, maybe we'll make a few of these records. So the people that are coming to see us, particularly in Manchester at that point, you know, they can listen to us on, on the record, you know. So it all came about like that, and it was all done in an afternoon. With Martin Hannett, right? With Martin Hannett. Who, um, what was he like as a, as um, a man? He was fantastic, wonderfully a character, right? Absolute character. As they call him, you like to call him the Phil Spector of, um, of Manchester. Yeah. I mean... Um, a mad genius. Just, yeah. I mean, uh, just before he died, I used to go and see him, uh, even though we weren't working. I'd go and visit him in a pub. I just loved having drinks with him in the end. And him peeping over his glasses and going, it's all a load of bollocks, a waste of time. He'd, he'd come out with these weird things all the time. you know. Um, but at that moment in time, we're in the studio... And the engineer's kind of got it sounding a bit right or something, and then he'd start pulling things and messing with it all, you know. And that's what, give it that weird sound, you know. I thought, don't know what he's doing, you know. <laughs> What's he doing with it all? I don't even think he knew, but... Was that the first record he worked on? Yeah. And, uh, wow. But some instinctive thing about him, you know. I mean, he was very well-versed in electronics and a lot of things, you know. But... um. The way he approached that, it wasn't a conventional way, you know. And I don't know whether he was feeling his way or whatever he was doing, but um, um, to quote Yeats, I think a terrible beauty was born. It right. sounded yeah, terrible, yeah. but it was beautiful, you know. And when you hear that record and when people heard it, they're going like, what the hell's, you know, what is this, you know? It's not nicely produced, but it's a massive assault, you know. It's like, whoa. You Breakdown's know. my favourite song on there. I love that yeah. song. Four lovely songs, you know, we did them all in a couple of hours straightening out. In fact, I was talking to a guy last night, Marco from Adam and the Ants, and he loves Spiral Scratch. And he was asking me how we did it. And, you know, he said he'd asked Pete, and he, he said, I'm asking you. And he said, Pete Shelley was drunk and couldn't tell me. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> neither can I, really. I said, we just kind of went in and did it. I said it was a critical guard moment of um, realisation, if you like, but I said in another way, we just went in there and blasted it out. But there was a chemistry between us and um, a fervent lust and desperation for life or something, or to make this music. And that was the chemistry, right from us getting together, we never sat down and worked anything out. It was just like, this is how the song goes and everybody jumped in. And I realised from the first rehearsal in this church that um, there was some magic, there was something incredible there, you know. And that happens with a lot of bands that, are, you know, go on and do great things, I guess, really, you know. There's some magic there. If you have to start rehearsing the intro like you used to in the rehearsal rooms next door, it was all morning going, let's try it again and all that. We never did all that. It's like, let's just get in and get on with and, uh, you know, that's how it works. And that, it captured the magic on uh, on that record, yeah. Why would you, if you sort of had to stipulate, or maybe you can just tell me straight up why, um, why did Howard leave? Was he just going in a different well, direction? Said, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've done what I've had to do. Uh, I made Spiral Scratch. And um, I'm leaving. He was still at, he was doing his finals at college at university and he had to get down to them. But um, I, like he said, he said, I've, I've done what I've, had to do, um, so I'm leaving. So, you know, it was like, he'd done about, I think it was 10 or 11 shows with us. It, it, it was less than six months, you know. And the band had just got the attention for the Spiral Scratch. Yeah. 
And um, it was like, wow, he's going. But me and Pete, I remember we were sat in the sofa in his house and we looked at each other and said, well, we're carrying on, you know. There was no doubt in your mind that no you were No doubt in our mind. Well, we had no choice. It's like, well, what, what are we going to do? I mean, we've just been working this up. You can't just walk away from it. And we was in for the long haul. It was like, we've got to take it further than Spiral Scratch. You know? um, on Spiral Scratch, I played bass. Yeah, yeah. And um, But I was a fraud on bass. You know, I was a guitarist that jumped in on bass because that's how we met. And it was like, well, I'll do the bass. Um, but... Um, then we moved over. I said, I'll move over the guitar and we'll get a bass player. And um, that's when the what they call the classic period, you know, the two buzzsaw guitars came in. Because you've got two guitars interacting, a lot of dy- uh, dynamics flying off, harmonics and things flying off each other. Like um, putting two grindstones together and the sparks flying. So after Spiral Scratch, you can start to hear the difference in of these two guitars, you know. Particularly by the time of his first album, you know, um, there's um, a definite presence of the two guitars and the riffs and the, the melodicness, you know. Um, so, so you know, it became a different group then, you know. Howard was there for the Buzzcocks Mark One for six months left. And he did us a favour because he went on to do the great magazine. But I don't think we could have took it much further. I think we made the point with Spiral Scratch and Time's Up, the, the bootleg thing that came at the time. And it worked out well in a way, so we could get onto this new phase of Buzzcocks, you know. Um, What's really interesting for me about that EP, and I wonder if you could sort of maybe tell me whether or not you identified with that scene that came out of it, but that was obviously the blueprint, wasn't it, for Factory Records? Oh, yeah. New hormones, and, and even the way you had the kind of the catalogue numbers and this idea of product integrated into the artwork. Oh, yeah. Um, And then that obviously evolved into Joy Division, which then became, you know, Happy Mondays. And did you sort of watch that development with any vested interest at all? Well, what happened was, um, eventually when we signed the record deal, um, we we had an office and a rehearsal place. Now, Tony Wilson used to come to the office and I wear a lot of polka dot shirts, or I have done over the last 10 years. The last time and I, I think, saw you playing, you were yeah. wearing one, yeah. So, what I'm trying to say with that is, he joined the dots, or the polka dots, <laughs> because he's like, they've got their own label, they've got their own office here. They've and, got the genius producer. And, and, yeah, and they've, yep, yeah, that's right, he went and, 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 um, and we all signed a nightclub for a while, we, we started putting on nights, on, uh, uh, this, uh, Nightclub called Waves in Shoot Hill in the centre of Manchester, near what used to be a, a, a sort of fish, fish or fruit and veg market and all that. But it was this 70s nightclub with three stories, and we had like films like A Razorhead on the one thing, then we'd have a band in the middle, and then something else there. So inspired by the Velvet Underground stuff, yeah, perhaps. all that. But it, it was just like, let's have a club, let's see it going, yeah. And, you know, you could say it was inspired by that and everything, but it was like, you know, let's get a little arty thing, you know, a, a nightclub, so let's do a bit of this. And, you know, Tony Wilson came to that, so you can see where it's all leading now. So the Buzzcocks have got their own label, New Hormones, they've got an office, and they've got this nightclub. And I remember him coming out there in his combat jacket and things, you know, because he used to be straight on the news, you know, and then... Um, so he obviously took all that on board, you know. 
And he was very inspired by the Buzzcocks. And, you know, he took it away and did his own thing with it, really. But really, the blueprint was that. Even them chevrons that Peter Saville did for the Hacienda, we had orange and silver things for this first album, the chevrons, you know. So there's a lot of correlation, a lot of similarities in some ways. It's like they've even took the chevrons, you know. <laughs> Curtis and Malcolm Garrett, you know. Do you um, feel like you got your dues in that sense? Or does that well, not really matter to you? It didn't matter. You've got to move on from all that. You can't, nobody, I mean, we took Joy Division on their first major tour. They was only doing a few shows around Manchester. And that kind of put them on the map. When we started doing the theatres, we took them on that tour and that sort of put them on the map, you know. So Nurturing that scene, developing. Same with the fall. You'd put, all, you know, oh, you can put all your gear in the back of our because we had trucks and all that and roadies and stuff so you, there was that kind of camaraderie really you know with it all which is what punk was all about right yeah yeah and we'd we'd been on the white riots over the clash and how was that that was amazing yeah and we'd done the gigs with the pistols here and there and they there was almost you know there was a bit of a brotherhood about it you know it was like yeah we'll help you you know and all that kind of stuff you know and he's like, when the Clash played Manchester Apollo, I went to see them uh, in the daytime at the Piccadilly Hotel in the centre. And they said, hey, you're doing a secret gig at Rafters, this nightclub in, on Oxford Road. And um, you can borrow our gear. So they did the Manchester Apollo, and then the next day did this secret gig there, you know, but we lent them all our gear. So there was stuff like that. And I lent Joe Strummer my guitar. You know. He covered it in newspaper and broke the... Uh, Machine head, you know. And the <laughs> next day we was playing uh, the Rainbow Finsbury Park. And I said, hey, Joe, you broke my machine head on the guitar. And he had some in his pocket. And he, I thought, that, he is guilty. <laughs> Normally guitarists just carry uh, ple- uh, plexums, not bloody machine heads around. So we put that on. And I've still got it on this guitar to this day. It's got all these, like, sort of gold metal machine heads. And this one plastic one off a cheap Spanish guitar like the one at the beginning. So God bless you, Joe, but you know what I mean? So that's a... Unfortunately, he took all the newspaper off when he handed me back. I wish he had the newspaper on now. Yeah. So um, so there's that kind of thing. Um, and then the Hacienda went on. But the Hacienda and all that kind of scene wasn't really happening until 1980. You've got to remember this is 1976 when we, when we started, you know, from the, the beginning for us. Um it was a really hot summer, and, and that was the game changer with, with only those bands around, you know, the Pistols, the Clash, Damned. the Damned, the Jam, and the Buzzcocks. That was a nucleus of British punk rock. All the others came later, and all the bands made great albums and great records, ironically, you know. I mean, you know, they're still the real deal out of it all, you know. I always say we wrote the script, and all the others came after, and they're acting out the play, you know. <laughs> and another band, I guess, that were there really early on that often don't get mentioned is the Vibrators, right? Well, yeah, that's true as well, yeah. And they're still going. What I love yeah. about a lot of those bands as well is all the ones who are still alive are yeah. very much still going, still touring, mm. still writing new music all the time. Mm. You know, everyone from UK subs to Stranglers to you guys, obviously. Yeah. It is an amazing thing, isn't it? You know? Because the lifespan of a band, I was always told, was five years, you know. Yeah. But because it was such a sort of cultural revolution if you like and a, a, a definitely a massive inspiration on society in some ways you know well on every level not just music not right just on music. fashion and yeah. art and everything yeah photography I would say you had to 
you know, rethink your own consciousness about what music was doing. It wasn't simply just tapping your foot to it and thinking, this is a nice tune. It was doing a lot of other things, like making you kind of try and realise who you were and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, I say, yeah, you know, you had to rethink your whole consciousness about who you were and what you were doing listening to this music and what is this music doing to me and all that. So it was very powerful. And that's why a lot of these bands are still around, you know. I mean, it's... Um, They're it, in it for it, life, the life well, it was yeah. more than, it was just more than, like, just making a record, you know. That's what you realise. I mean, you grew up with pop music, but, you know, pop music comes and goes, you know, but certain things have a lot more life-changing aspects to it. And and that's what was good, really, you know what I mean? For me, it was like, that's what it was about. It was about the attitude at the time um, and and stuff like that, you know, relating to life and the problems, the highs, the lows, everything, you know, the whole spectrum, you know. You know, I, I started to realise I called my songs the poetry of life, you know, that's what you're writing about, really, you know. You know, I, Everybody sat down to write a hit. I was trying to go, here's a proposition, what do you think about this? Have you ever come across this? I think that's why you were always such a unique band. I mean, every punk band offered something unique around that original period, but I think with you guys, you had this duality of insanely catchy, hooky, pop-influenced, but then still avant-garde songs, married with these kind of existential, psychological lyrics. Yeah. Which was quite unique, even for punk, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's some of them simple punk bands, and, you know, God bless them, but they were just finger-pointing and going, the government's wrong, and we knew life was a lot more complex than that, you know. And we'd read the existentialist books and all that kind of stuff. And for me, I'm a working-class guy, but, you know, a lot of working-class people, you know, read all this kind of stuff. And I thought, when they come for me from Oxford and Cambridge, I'll have them, you know what I mean? You've got to be, you know, defensive on every level. You've got to be armed, you know. But also, it was lovely to go into that world, you know, from growing up in that humble Terry Street to all the beauty of stuff, all the beauty that a lot of people in that street missed, you know what I mean? Um, you know, they didn't get it, you know. They just, but you realise you was one of them, but at the same time, you know, it's like the Ibsen's enemy of the people, really, you know, because they'd be going like, who the hell do you think you are, and all that, you know, quoting Yates and all that stuff around here, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a bit like that as well, you couldn't get into it too much with them. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I do know what you mean. Which, which yeah. was kind of like, oh dear, you know, you can't win either way here, you know. Um, <clears throat> but we did have that, you know. When I met Pete, um, we used to talk about all kinds of things. And the great thing about me and Pete Shelley, more than any other rhythm section we've had, and they've all been good and good mates in their own little ways, but me and Pete Shelley could stay in a pub forever and t talk about this, that, and the other, you know. And I thought, there's one thing about him and me at that time. I thought, he likes to stay in a pub and do at least eight pints a go, you know. We might come out arguing by the end, but we've had a good run, you know. And you're closer so than you went lovely. in. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. lovely, you know, I mean, but that was a lot of off-the-ball work as well, intellectual fencing, I used to call it, you know, wasn't arguing. But we never argued that much. There was a period of it, but when you're with somebody like for four years, we've been together longer than our relationships, you know. It's a lot to hold down, so we, we've done well on that. Thing is, now we've run out of things to argue about. <laughs> oh, yeah, you've covered all ground. Really sad we've been there, we've done that. Okay, yeah. you know. But um, how come the, the band the, called the, Time back in 81? Um, just excess in the end. 
Right. It's like what you mean, like the wheels were or... falling off the wagon. Yeah. It's it's one of them things where you think you're hip and cool and you're clever, but when you start going on the road, like we was on the top of the pops every other week and doing these 32 day tours every month, we never stopped. And then we started to go to America and all that. But, you know, I think there's a. Uh, one of the agents gave us a mirror, and I know, I think in 78 we did about 82 shows, you know, so a lot of shows, and then a lot of things in between, i.e. writing songs and recording and making the records, and, you know, so there's a lot going on, so it became more excessive, but I kind of like that, as I've always said, it's like Turner tying himself to the mass to feel the waves and the sea and get involved in it. I knew that I wanted to get involved in the you know, the sex, drugs and the rock and roll of it. It's like, you know, suddenly he was alleviated and free and you had a bit of money, you know, you had no money before all this. And you was travelling around, you know, and there was little parties after and it's like, this is amazing. But you've got to remember, we we was like in our early 20s, we, we did, you couldn't party at home like people that go to work, dude. So you had to party on the road anyway, you know. So picking up girls and all that, it's like what you would, most guys would do in a nightclub, but it's like, unfortunately, they come to the gig and get them all back to the hotel, you know. So we did have wild times, and many bands go through that. It is an amazing thing, you know. It's an incredible thing, you know. You know, I wouldn't, it could be crazy and debauts and everything else, but, you know, I mean, it's, the people that were involved enjoyed it. <laughs> Nobody complained. Yeah. You know. So all parties had a great time, you know what I mean? The girls that come to see us and the guys. Just wonderful moments, really. And why shouldn't it be a bit crazy on the road? You're in a band, you know, yeah, that's that's what it was all about. You know, when you're 23, 24 and all that stuff, you know, you're still buzzing and want some excitement, you know. And luckily, we were staying in these big hotels and that and, and abused them, you know. We had the police <laughs> called a few times, you know. <laughs> no doubt. We'd rip the bar things off and... Police would be chasing around the hotel. You know, nobody knew that about the buzzcocks, really, but we we was just, like, out there as Led Zeppelin, having of the gods in some ways. Didn't you take Acid, or Pete did, on Top of the Pops? I think no, sure. that was no. on our last three singles, yeah. Right, right, right. But, I mean, there was probably Acid taken at the time. <laughs> but there was all kinds of things being taken, you know. Uh, you know, spliffs, coke, yeah, you yeah. Name, you know. Who used to but go the, the hardest the, out of all the other bands around you? I don't know. They probably we never really discussed it with any bands, really. We just thought it before. You wouldn't see well, them kind of being like, just, well, look at that. There'd like, be certain people like Johnny Thunders who'd ply the trade out going, hey, I'm strung out now. But in interviews, we never spoke about it because we're from Manchester and a lot of people in Manchester don't make a big deal of it. It's like, we're from Manchester, that's what we do. what we do. It's not a yeah. big deal. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't like, um, hey, we're taking drugs, everybody, or something. But also, you know, you read all the sucks, the doors of perception, gates of hell and all that, and was experimenting with this stuff. And sometimes, you know, it, it can be handy for, you know, word things and experience and going inside yourself and finding out who you are. You know, Absolutely. a lot of things, would it? You know, it wasn't just, I would say, if you, if you put something into an empty vessel, then nothing happens. But if you put something in somebody's dangerous mind... Things can happen, you know. And, and that's the thing, and it's how good at you are at walking the tightrope without falling off, you know. That's the danger, you know. I mean, I won't advocate it to anyone, but I mean, we lapped him and did all that. But it, 
Avengers, where we, you know, we did about five solid years from seventy, well, yeah, seventy six to eighty, going on eighty one, and we was kind of exhausted, really. But I mean, I would say you you don't break America; America breaks you. Many people are trying, but I didn't mind that. I mean, we had some crazy times in America, you know, wild old times, you know. Ended up at people's houses all night and not sleeping for 11 days. I didn't sleep one time. 11 days? Yeah. Wow. That was with a little help from a few things. Yeah, of course. But, <laughs> but still, that was a bit of wow. a record. And doing what I do every night, which amazed me. I thought, well, I've got to sleep somehow, yeah. So, but, I mean, there was some, you know, crazy thing. One of the craziest parties I had was in Salt Lake City. I was told they don't drink or do anything there. It was one of the wildest parties I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> uh, but... So Mormon state, you right? have to get yeah. yeah. I'm told they don't drink and all that. They only drink a bit of cough medicine to get high or something. It was completely the opposite. And God bless them all. I had some wild parties there. That was, it really shocked me. I was like, whoa, the Mormons. <laughs> um, so you come across all this kind of stuff, and um, you know, it, it's there when you're young to be embraced. You know, what I mean, it's like yeah, you have a you know, you get into it and get involved in it, or you don't don't bother if he's gonna damage you or hurt you but you know I enjoyed taking it to excess you know what I mean I've been to the edge many times but just about managed to get back you know but I, I got a song called A Maria on one of my albums and, and uh, I think the second verse is all those books that we once read just to grasp a line and I was thinking that's a dual thing because sometimes you did line off a book but also grasping the lines of the book um, told us all about life's clues but we had to make up our own minds, you know. But it's also something that nearly went over the edge, but just got back in time, you know. Um, so there's a lot of self-explanatory stuff about me experiencing those stuff in his song, A Maria, you know. Um, so, so things like that. But I knew I'd go to the edge a few times, really, you know. I mean, you're You actually sorted it out. You had to be tough and strong. Yeah. What, what I realised years later was like, when you saw the Beatles and all that, it going into one house and thinking it's all lovely and that, or people in my area, they were some a lot better players than me at the time, is like, I thought it's one thing learning an instrument, but you've got to be tough with the psychology of going on the road and dealing what it is in the band, you know. The and business a lot of side, people come. Travelling and the touring it's side. Massively but. intense. And, you know, we had Beatlemania. When we played in Liverpool, we had to go home in a police car. Because they said your car was surrounded by 300 people, and they have the Newcastle City Hall and all that. Those are crazy moments and different things. Um, but you know, you've got to be prepared and tough and for all that. And some people that think you can learn a few chords at home and they've sorted it out. <laughs> There's a lot more to it, you know what I mean? Well, fame damages so many people, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. It? It's, yeah. a, it's an untamed beast. Absolutely, yeah. And, and John Lydon's a fascinating character to me because, I mean, he was public enemy number one, wasn't he? Mm. With the filth and the fury and all of that. A and lot of responsibility. To yeah. come through that is yeah. quite something mentally. And with the police and the law all trying to plant stuff and harass mm. him. and It's a massive thing to deal with. But Did, I guess you guys escaped a lot of that, right? You weren't oh. as notorious in the press for being, you know, this kind of... No, we, we was almost a little... little national security. A little step, step back from it, you know. Somehow, we, because we were based in Manchester as well for a lot of them early years, the spotlight wasn't always there, you know. Yeah. People that see you in the clubs in Manchester come up and have a chat with you, but nobody was really out to get chasing you or, out yeah. to get you and all that stuff. So it was a different thing. So you're kind of like one step back from it, really. 
And then again, we, we weren't like spraying cans of lager at people, you know. Suddenly I thought, we've got to be cool, really. You know, leave that to Sid Vicious. Mm-hmm. Old Sid can do that. Well, I guess they invited a lot of it you as know, well, didn't they? All that kind of thing. When you start setting your soul stall out like that. And also, as well, is that thing of... Um, you could develop a character like that, but I thought I wanted to be able to go to a local pub and deal with real things as well. And the issues I was dealing with as well weren't, weren't just about, you know... Uh, Throwing fucking lager at somebody or something, you know, I mean, there's a lot more things going on, you know. And, um, or, the, or the man, as it were. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, you know, I wanted to deal with all that. But also, I wanted to deal with people. So, when people come up to me in a pub or something, they go, Thanks for the music, Steve, you know. I don't have to put on this persona and go, Oh, yeah, I'm this and that. Because it's tiring, right? Yeah. Well, I realise, to be honest, Johnny's a bit like that. He's lovely underneath, but he has this. Um, and God bless him for that, because he, he had to, you know, he broke the doors open with the, with the Sex Pistols. But it's almost like sometimes a little bit of a character. I know he's been himself, but there's, you know, he said himself took a bit of Richard the Third and all that. But it's an act, you know, a little bit, you know. And I thought I don't want to get into that when people, you know. People come and see, you know, spot you somewhere. You've got to start acting and, oh, right. hello, yeah. yeah. I'll just put the mask on. All right, now I'm Steve Diggle, you know. Do you get to walk around most of the time and just sort of blend in and be anonymous? Yeah, yeah. Nice. I mean, a lot of people spot me, you know, when I'm around London or, or anywhere, really. But, I mean, they come up and go, thanks for the music and all that. That's what I'm saying. If, if, if You know, they don't come, like, chasing around or trying to have a go at you for something a lot of the time, you know. Hey, talking about this circus idea, let me join another Guinness. Yeah. And we'll come back. We're we'll breaking up. Yeah. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So I wanted to ask you, just off the back of what I we was saying a moment ago about that whole fame circus and the notoriety thing, and you obviously toured with Nirvana. Yeah, just I guess in the sort of closing stages of, of Kurt's life, right? It was. Yeah, um, we um, we did the the last tour with them. I mean, they they came when Teen Spirit and um, the album Nevermind was at number one all over the world. I guess uh, they um, 
we were playing in Boston and it, it was our trade test transmission tour and we had all these televisions behind us, all old second-hand televisions. We used to get them every day. We'd do all Britain and Europe and all around America, old televisions every night and we'd run some art film through there, you know, crazy bits of porn and art and weird things. But each night I used to smash them with the guitar stand, going back to seeing things like The Move and Pete Townsend smash, you know, and then them, them um, destructive artists that used to smash pianos <laughs> in the 60s. Jerry Lee, yeah. Yeah, you know. But there used to be them art things where they destroyed pianos and do all that, and that was like, a, you know, an art piece in itself. So I started smashing them. And then one night I got an electric shock, because if you hit the wrong components in there, you can go up and die, you know. And I nearly did one night. It was only the... the the electricity within me, you know, being vibed up playing, somehow I managed to leave that mic stand, you know. So anyway, Nirvana came... Thanks. Nirvana, Nirvana came backstage, and um, um, we'd done this gig in Boston. I'd smashed the TVs behind me. Bang, bang, one after another. And he said, that, you know... I love the way you smash the guitars. Uh, the, uh, I love the way you smash... Um, the television, Steve, you know. I said, there's an art to it, Kurt. You know, I said, uh, I learned that, you know, I got an electric shock from one thing. So I said, I started throwing the mic stand in the centre of the screen and then it pings in the middle, it implodes and the smoke comes up. I said, there's an art to it because if you do it wrong, the glass will just break and nothing happens. So I had perfected this, the art of throwing it at the screen, hitting it in the right place and the smoke had come up, you know. You wouldn't guess that if you're just doing one or two of them because you just think, oh, you know, you must smash it in the smoke. But it doesn't. You've got to get it just right. So I told him that and he loved all that. He said, I've only smashed one TV. I said, you've not lived, man. I said, I've <laughs> just smashed thousands. And it was all very personal. Some with cigarette burns and, you know, you could tell they'd all been in the, people's living rooms, these TVs, which was even better than like, just hiring some stage screen thing. Yeah, of course, yeah. But he, he loved that. Anyway, um, they said, we, we want you to come on the tour with us. Uh, we do some shows together. We're big fans. And um, um, we said, we can't do it now. Uh, you know, we're on, our, on doing our two-month American tour. But when you come to Europe, give us a call. And that's what they did. So uh, we did the shows in them all around Europe. And, um, and we got well. You know, we were all hanging out together. Dave Grohl and uh, Pat Smear and Chris Novoselic, all lovely guys. They was in our dressing room, we'd been there. It was a great tour, you know. And then at the end, I said to Kurt, you know, we, we'll see, we was going to do Brixton Academy prom, prom, possibly together. See you back in London. You know? On the first night, it's a famous story, but I said to the tour manager, where's the, where's the cocaine? I've just landed at a stadium and there's nobody around. <laughs> and I got, he said, oh, Kurt's, you know, on the bus, he's probably got something, you know. So he said, um, let's go and see if he, I don't know where he'll let you, you know, he might be not wanting anybody on. I said, just tell him it's Steve from Manchester, he knows. And uh, he opened the doors and I got him. Kurt was loving. He said, "Steve, do you want to do it here or take it with you?" And he went upstairs. So I chopped it all out. And Dave, no, Pat, no. 
and I did the lot. And he, he came down the stairs and he said, what happened to the coach, Steve? I said, I, said, I, I offered everybody, I forgot about you, but it's time. So I would say when I die, I'll put a couple of grams in the coffin for Kurt. God bless him. That's but he was lovely. We got on well. But the, all, all the band were great. And an amazing band as well. Very powerful live. And uh, it was a great moment. But um, by the time I got back from that tour, within days, he, you know, he'd uh, tried to OD in, um, in Rome because they had a television thing to do after the tour. And then I think the next day or so, it flew back to Seattle. Time I got back home, it was on the news, he'd shot himself, I couldn't believe it, because, you know, he was kind of used to being with him, and and the others on, you know, and he was like, this is like some kind of nightmare, some dream, you know. It's like, you know, because each day you'd be going, all right, and all that, and then suddenly, we're like, okay, another tour's ended, but now he's gone completely, you know, it, it, shock for everybody in the world, you know. So that was a moment, you know. Did he seem like he was troubled at all by the the fame yeah, game? He was under a lot of pressure, I think, you know, because they had, like, the world stage, you know. It was the biggest band in the world at the time. But um, walking around some of them stadiums with him and having a little chat, you know, it's kind of weird, really, and everybody kind of after him. But um, So it's a lot to hold down. So, you know, um, but he was, a good he was bloke, dealing was he? with it all, all OK, yeah. He actually asked how we survived over the years and stuff like that, you know. Little did I know the reason for that, you know. <laughs> um, but um, I got on really well with him and had many interesting conversations walking around and, you know, he was great and he, they were all great, you know. Um, um, but you just didn't see that coming, you know. But it had happened before because we took Joy Division on the road and by the end of that tour, and Curtis had hung himself. I was in a nightclub in Manchester days later and they said Ian's hung himself the day um, when Spinal Scratch came out Mark Boland sent us a picture you've got to come on the show we had this Mark show in Granada TV because he was a big champion of punk wasn't he yeah well he sent us a picture holding Spinal Scratch saying you've got to come on the show the next thing we thought that would be our first sort of television break or something the next thing you know he'd gone the day we signed a deal in 1977, you're waking up thinking we're signing the major record deal now. On the on the Radio 4 News, I was listening, he said, Elvis Presley's died today. <laughs> so there's a lot of deaths around Butch Cox, you know, in a, in a sense. You know. So you kind of start getting used to it a bit, really, in a way. As well, much as you can, you Because it was there from the outset. Yeah. Well... Going back to them early reading days, I remember buying a book on suicide. I was buying some books from Oxfam, as you used to do, you know, for a couple of pence in there. And I bought one on suicide for a laugh. Little did I know <laughs> I'd be experiencing some of that from the outside later on. So I just thought, mm, well, that might be interesting as well. I'll have that, because I'd bought these other books I wanted. I thought, oh, I'll have that, you know, just see. But I mean, it did say that a lot of these things are premeditated, you know, it didn't just happen randomly at the moment, you know. A lot of these things that people are planning it out. And you start to think now, well, maybe these these guys were all troubled, you know, things building up, you know. But for me, coming from Manchester, you know, and a lot of Mancunians, you know, you've got to be tough and surviving. It's not that way, less delicate than anyone else, but you've got to get in life's existential boxing ring and 
keep having it, I think, you know. That's the only, you know, you, that's kind of one thing that, I don't know, but for my child, I'd have learned, you know what I mean? Because it was tough old days, you didn't have anything, you, but you know how to adapt to everything. So it wasn't always a big deal, you know what I mean? It, the survival and then getting into the world, you know, it's, um, it wasn't that much of a problem, you know. Because we weren't spoiled with anything, you know. Uh, so, it, it, like, you don't have anything. When you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. It was that, really. And um, it's that kind of thing. But, you know, people can be tainted to the edge and go over the top, you know. Who knows why, but, you know, some people just just don't make it, just can't make it somehow. You know, it's very strange, that one, you know. But, uh, you know, you know, there's no set answer to that, you know. Yeah, I guess when you're thrust into the public limelight, you don't know that you're not equipped to deal with it until you're in it and you're struggling, do oh, you? Because, yeah. I mean, you know, Ian Curtis probably didn't think that he was going to be this, you know, voice piece of a generation, the same thing with Kurt. And yeah. I you mean, just want to go and create art, don't you, and put your heart and yeah. soul into writing music that you love. From and, my own thing, um, as soon as Buzzcocks got known in the early days, walking down the streets of Manchester, you'd get recognised by people. Then you'd be in a pub and there's people looking at you and all that. And um, I thought, I've got to get used to this and adapt to it because, you know, nobody knew me when I was 17 and, you know, you're just somebody else in the pub or walking down the street. But all of a sudden they didn't. I thought, you know, you, you've got to um, take that into account, you know. And um, like I say, the way I you know, kind of found a way of dealing with it, really, you know. Um, on the one hand, being crazy, but uh, one hand, you've got to, like, touch normality as well, you know what I mean? Keep grounded, and, yeah. yeah. And you've got to remind yourself of that somehow, you know. And that's the thing. But um, it can be... Those guys probably are a bit more intense than me, but, it, you know, it, it can be very demanding and soul-destroying. There's no doubt about it, you know. So you you you... you Got to keep yourself together and all that, you know. Let's talk about Love is Lies, Steve. Mm. One of my favourites of the Buzzcocks. Uh, probably the first, was it the first sort of acoustic orientated song the band produced? Yep. And and a real precursor for me as well for kind of Oasis and a lot of that mm. Manchester indie scene that came later on as well. I can hear a lot of that yeah. in that. Tell me about that song. That was a composition of yours, right? Yeah. Of um, the second album, Love is yeah. Lies. Oh, sorry, well, was, that, was that the title? Uh, Love Bites? Yeah, Love Bites, yeah. But it was, I mean, I used to write some of my songs on the acoustic guitar anyway, you know, it'd be an old acoustic guitar there, the famous Echo guitars from the 70s, there's loads of them around. Um, and um, um, so I was writing that at home and I thought, you know, we need an acoustic song really, it's nice to do something different. A lot of my songs, like, like autonomy was different, you know. I'd, I'd done the fast cars, which was linear. Promises is linear, you know, straight head pops, all that kind of stuff. But autonomy was different, and I was trying to look for. And I thought, well, the acoustic guitar with that, you know. Um, and then I started to realise, you know, people were saying, oh, there's a lot of love songs with Buzzcocks. Well, well, there is and there isn't, you know. There's a lot more songs, different songs on the albums, but a few of the ones that implied love in them was um you know by pete really that's his thing i was the social sort of guy and he was the 
you know, writing about, you know, sort of heartache, heartache and romance. Yeah. So, and then the album was going to be kind of called Love Bites and all that. And I, I thought, tongue in cheek, I'll write Love is Lies, <laughs> you see. Sort of started off a bit like that. But also, I thought he, he's got, a, you know, I thought, oh, he, he's writing about these things, nobody kind of loves him kind of thing. So I thought, I'll just write one completely opposite, Love is Lies, you know, <laughs> deal with that. Don't worry about it. But, but, but also, you'd realise it's a bit heavier than it seems because there is a lot of lies, you know. And this slight tongue-in-cheek of love is lies, love is eyes, love is everything that's nice. Love is not as cold as eyes, but that's what love means to me, you know. Um, but it had a lovely melody and all that, really. Lovely really nice. chord changes and it's stuff. It's almost kinksy in a way as well. Kinksy and all that kind of thing. So that would be my roots, you know, the Beatles, kinksy roots, definitely, and all that kind of stuff. And... Um, um, it's a great track. Yeah, and um, it, it, that's you know, um, there's a few people that said to me like yourself, you know, they love that song, and, and really that don't get highlighted enough, I don't think. You know, no way. There's people know about it, but you never hear it on the radio, and you think, why? You know what I mean? It's a good song, you know. I did sing it in a weird voice at the time. <laughs> I like that about it as well, though. Yes, I sang it in this kind of weird voice. I don't know where I was coming from at the time. <laughs> you know, it doesn't but, sound like any other song in the entire Buzzcocks no. catalogue. When I, we was playing Dublin a few years back, and um, we did that song, and this Dubliner said to me, he said, you don't understand about that album, Steve, Love Bites. He said, it's about Love Is Lies. He said, that is the song about that album. You know, that is the one. And I never looked at it like that, but in a way, it's quite powerful, that one, you know, more than the others. I know it's, you know, you've got a lot of the good songs on there. But... You know, it was good to do something different, and um, and and you know, like I say, it probably don't get as much acclaim or looked at as it should really. But there are a lot of people that like it. It's just in the media that it seems to miss its way somehow. You know, but um, but it, yeah, it's a lovely chord changes, and a lovely thing because it starts to you know, it it's got a simplicity about it. But also, love is a lot of lies and stuff. People are not always straightforward with each other in, in love relationships on many levels, really. It's a game of chess, isn't it? Well, yeah. You know, I mean, you can say you love each other, but they're thinking other things as it's going. There's all kinds of things going on in love, you know. Shakespeare tried to explain it, you know what I mean? Um, so there's a lot more to it. And I thought the title's great, Love is Lies, you know. You've got to deal with that, you know what I mean? It's all nice, you know. So there's that kind of stuff, you know, it's like the, a positive and a negative with it, you know. And now it becomes this mysterious third. But people know, you know, that inside all them things, you know what I mean? You know, and, it, and it's got them pedestrian things, I'm going out, I'm going to find myself a love, you know. But at one point, said, there's no one there, now it's all gone, you know, because people dream about this perfect person as well, you know. I'm going to find this lover one day. I'm going to find this, you know, perfect girl. Up, up. And What's sad is that work. it makes so many people miserable when they don't find that or reach that. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, it is a fairy tale. It's nice to believe in it. And I, mm. I do think love is out there and it exists on mm. many levels. But I think so many people allow themselves to be hurt and go through so much pain yeah. because they're like, I'm lonely. I haven't got this soulmate that is out there for me, but I can't find them. And you know, it's kind of almost like this inbuilt lie that we're told from birth isn't it yeah and if uh, true love exists uh, if and people you know uh, don't achieve that it causes all kinds of problems 
So by saying love is lies, it's almost like saying don't worry, you know. It, it don't have to be all this thing that it, you, you, you think it's supposed to be. Because we used to get people coming to gigs telling us about how they split up with this, that and the other, you know. And you become an agony answer or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, get well. over yourself, man. You yeah. know? But sometimes <laughs> in them early days, you had a baby. You know? Probably that's why I went to Albany in my head lately. It's like, fuck, they won't ask me about the relationship on this one. <laughs> but, um, you know, like I said, the promises one and all that, but there was also this other song, My She's a Girl from a Change Store. And the thing about that, I was reading a book by Henry Miller called Black Spring, via George Orwell, I think it was. And um, the opening pages of the book says, you know, forget James Dean, forget Marilyn Monroe, everybody in your street's a hero. And he starts to describe, you know, when he was in this, you know, growing up, Going back to what you were Junkie saying at the start of this Bill conversation Nicky, about and all that, yeah, all the street. characters in the yeah. street, and going, they were the stars, really, you know. And I thought well, that's an interesting thought. And I thought also in the days of punk, where we're making regular people now, so I made the a chain store girl, the um, because of the nice, it seemed a modern word at the time, a chain store rather than a shop. You know, um, I thought I'd make her the the vehicle and the star of the show. You know. Like that kind of book idea, you know, you know, not some fucking actor or somebody this and that and the other film stars. Like the girl that's, but also, um, I used to enjoy sociology in that, the science of society. You know, as you can see, all that coming, and um, um, I, I, I realised that um, uh, I thought well. I'll make her the star of the thing, but ask the sociological question, because when I was doing my old levels, it was always, you know, so it was like, why she's a girl from a chainsaw? You know, it's like a sociological question. And I, I thought, that's a really long title, you know. I kind of enjoyed it for that, you know. Um, and then I put, um, I put in, um, I remember reading in sociology about Bernstein's language, buddy, where the language at home was different from the language in the class for working class kids, particularly, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And um, this bloke had written a book on it, and I remember reading it, and somehow that came back to me when, we, when I was doing this, and I thought, I'll throw that in as well. Bernstein's language barrier. So if anybody's listening, you're going, what's Bernstein's language barrier? And then hopefully it'll make them, help them to go, do you know what, you know, Coming from a working class home myself, you never heard big words like ubiquitous and all that in the house, you know. But when you go into the classroom, that's talking like that. And a lot of underachievers came for, you know, people didn't achieve stuff because they're blinded by these words and the language, you know. One that do with anything less. And I thought, that's a bit of a punk thing. Let's have a bit of that going on. It's a bit intellectual and all that, but why not pop that in a song rather than going, you know, I love you and you love me. Let's put that in and, you know, enlighten people, you know, or go, what do you think of this, you know? And um, so there's stuff like that in there, you know. Did you find many other peers that were on that same quest? I feel like Joe Strummer was a special guy in that regard, mm. but there wasn't maybe that many, particularly at the start, trying to, as, as you say, inspire almost an intellectual and spiritual awakening no yeah you know there's people like joe strummer you know definitely yeah 
you know, and, and like that. But it was all to share that with just like simply screaming and shouting that it's all the government's wrong or something. And that seemed a bit simple, you know. Yeah, they're there for the party, you know. But I, I was interested in that other stuff and I just wanted to pass it on to other people as well and share that kind of thing and get into that as well because, you know, something you'd learnt yourself somehow and, and all that and going, if you can put that in a song, surely that's got me more than going around the moon in June and all this, you know. And what um, could be more punk than that as well, right? Exactly, yeah. I thought it's like subversive punk in a way, you know. Mm. It's like getting a bit of intellectuality or something in there more than just, you know... Rage nothingness. or... Yeah, you know. What about John Cooper Clark? Love John Cooper Clark. We we, we, we we used to get in an old van in Salford, driven by this Jamaican guy, Augustus. Never knew what he was saying. Oh, no, and all that, and the gears were... T- and uh, he took us to the band on the wall, and uh, we had John Cooper Clark open up for us, and, and all the punks were screaming and shouting at him. And he had to raise his game all the time, speed up now. I loved the life stuff because the abuse he got and he'd like give it a torrent of, a machine of words to overpower him. It, 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 beautiful moments, you know. Because he had a lot to deal with in them early days. I can believe it. But it but it, it was magic as well, you know. You know, because they weren't really, they were like, we want to see the buzzcock, who's this bloke, you know, particularly in them early days. But it sounds great when you hear it all now, you know. As you say, rapid fire machine gun yeah. style. Absolutely, yeah, and um, and he was trying to do that same thing, wasn't he? Of challenge people intellectually mm. and Challenging introduce new ideas. I just wanted to jump around to the music, and he's suddenly doing all his words. But beautiful, amazing poetry. You know what I mean? Um, street poetry in a lot of ways, and well, I intellectual poetry in, in other ways, poetry mm-hmm. in other ways as well. And he's a pop so culture encyclopedia, well John, isn't he? Yeah, and um, amazing sense of humour. So funny. It's so funny, isn't it? So, I interviewed him once about five years yeah. ago and he was just a joy. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I've, I've seen him over the years at many different things. Um, um, and when we've had a drink together, it's been amazing. I just hung out. Because he's very self-aware, isn't he? And yeah. he kind of plays a character as well, but he does it tongue-in-cheek and he knows yeah. he is. And he... Absolutely. But I mean... Talking to John Cooper Clark about spud guns and then graduating to gat guns <laughs> and how, like, when there used to be a few new cars in the streets in the 60s and you play football, if that football hit a fucking car, the, the, the owners would be out going, get that ball away from the car. Like, John knows all them things like I do, you know. But there's a lovely moment telling him about it. I mean, it sounds simple, but that's what you grew up with, them magic things, you know. Watching a football in slow motion hit somebody's new Ford Corsair. It was like, you know he's going to come out. You know? um, there, is, there is a moment on YouTube where we're completely out of it at some festival. He nice. wasn't playing, but he'd come to see us because he was living there. And then, um, I think it's about six o'clock in the morning and we're well gone. You know? I can't remember what we're saying, but it is quite funny. You know? I said Because, it. well, what reminded me, there's a, there's a classic moment of... Uh, Bob Dylan and John Lennon in the back of a taxi, and they're both completely out of it. And not to equate us with them, but it's a similar thing, you know what I mean? Contemporaries. It's like Steve Diggle and John peers. Cooper Clark in a field at six in the morning. I've been up all night, and we're trying to explain something. Probably that thing, when a ball comes and it's a car, you know, the, the owner's going to come out and go, take the, you know. <laughs> what about an unlikely 
uh, maybe friendship, but you certainly spent some time and played some shows with Pearl Jam yeah. in the noughties. An incredible band. I'd never put you two guys together as groups, mm. but seemingly it worked. And Yeah, I mean... And they're punk at heart, aren't they? Although their sound yeah. isn't necessarily punk. Yeah. So they stand for integrity. and Yeah. I mean, they're trying to make it mean something and meaningful, you know. And you get that from Eddie and all the band. You know, I have to keep including the band in these things because... They was all great guys. We did that tour with them. But I met Eddie. I used to, I went for a phase of having parties in my room. It was always best to have parties in other people's room because if you pulled a girl, you could take take her out, but you're stuck with them all there. I used to have that sometimes. remember waking up in Australia, lay down for five minutes with this girl and like there's hundreds of people there. And the tour man is going, come on, we've got to get on a plane. And I, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so I stopped actually. You can't get rid of people. Um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, you come to these parties, and Eddie was there, come to see us a few times. And um, um, when we were in Los Angeles, me and him went round looking at guitars and stuff. And I think we was going to drive to the Hollywood sign. I mean, I was a little bit strung out there. I was a bit out of it, but uh, you know, had a good time um, with Eddie, you know. And um, um, at the time, I think he was working. I think he had kind of like two jobs. He was working in some job, and he was working as a doorman, you know. A doorman? A, a doorman as well at night, you know, because Americans sometimes, quite often, have these two jobs to survive on. But the reason I'm telling you that, Eddie knows about them things, and you can see that coming through his emotions and things that he writes about, you know. You mean everyday so, blue-collar everyday kind of blue-collar kind of experiences? Stuff. Um, suddenly, you know, Pearl Jam take off. Um, we get a call, you know, and when we oh, so you knew them before they were yeah, I knew, sort of known I knew at Eddie all. before it was in Pearl Jam and all that. Oh you know? wow! So we'd hang around and talk about things. And we I went, was going to say he was working as a doorman when he was in Pearl Jam. I was yeah. like, why would he do that? Oh no, no, <laughs> this <laughs> no, is before no. all that. Yeah, got you, got you, got you. But I'm saying he was doing all that, and then yeah. suddenly, you know, boom, he, he you know. He got himself together and worked hard to, and, you know, got got sorted out with Pearl, you know, sorted out Pearl Jam and stuff. So um, I knew him from then, really, you know. And um, then we was doing a two-month tour one time and this, we got a call, well, they joined, you know, we, we come and join them at the end of the tour and do these shows with him. These big open-air stadiums and all that. So um, we did that, you know. But on the first one, I'm sound-checking, looking at this, you know, the vast, empty field of seats and uh, Eddie said remember me and it was a bit like this is your life Eddie you didn't tell me about this you know so we have been good mates over the years you know um, funny enough the last time I bumped into him was in uh, Hyde Park watching Neil Young right I'd got a pint at the bar turned around and Eddie had just been playing um, um, Milton Keynes Bowl and I turned around and this bloke sort of jumped on me and knocked my pint over. I was like, Eddie, you know. <laughs> and we had a good talk then, you know. But um, there's a lot of heart and soul in Eddie. And um, I, um, um, in fact, uh, you know, I ended up doing um, Barbara right. We'd done our set at the uh, Madison Square Garden. And I got a bit stoned after him. This Meg Ryan was there. I didn't even know <laughs> she was at first. And um, I was chatting with her and that. And then I got this call saying, um, Eddie's waiting for her on the stage and they're doing um, Barbara O'Reilly, you know. And just dropped it on you. So, yeah. 
And I'm thinking, it's the end yeah, of the tour. I'm, I'm relaxing now. And uh, next minute I'm on, and the roadies said, Can you, uh, it'd be an honour if you play Johnny Ramone's guitar. I think he was dying of cancer, or he just died at a point. Um, so it was a great honour for me to play Johnny Ramone's guitar and be on the stage with my mate Eddie and all of Pearl Jam, because they're all great, you know. And playing the Who. Yeah. And playing the Who, Barbara O'Reilly. It's a great moment, a great bit on the video. It, you know, it's on the Pearl Jam live at the Garden. And, um, um, you know, it's on YouTube as well, I think. But, um, you know, they were all great guys, them guys, you know. So we had a lovely time with them, you know. Um, they used to, I think they watched me smashing the guitars and they tried it then. <laughs> I'll have a bit of that. It's an art form though, Eddie. you got to get it just right. Well, exactly. <laughs> Put on Mike McCready, smash one, and then it hit a kid in the audience and oh, he had no. the kid back up to <laughs> explain it. I'm sorry. <laughs> But they were lovely, you know. Um, um, so so that, those are good moments. And we, we've always had this affinity with a lot, a lot of American bands that seem to like us, you know. Um, and you did Warp Tour as well. Which yeah. Is, I mean, that must have been a crazy world for you to oh, walk into. Mental, yeah. Everyone's like a third year age. <laughs> but it, it was one of the mad moments where we thought, well, we've not done this. And we kind of knew the guys that put it on. They said, why don't you come and do that? But then it, we, we was in some weird field every night, you know. Like car parks. The, the, the bus, yeah, the bus would like travel overnight and um, you'd wake up and you think, it's it's the same field as yesterday, you know. There's like a big football stadium. And you're going, the toilet was over there yesterday. Now, you know, um, that was a bit crazy. That one. How amazing, though, to be it was reintroduced nice to new generations of kids yeah. and to keep that. Well, Interesting. Fan base, young. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of kids that were in them new bands would come up to us and go, you know, we were so inspired by the Buzzcocks and all that. So, I mean, it was... Bands like Offspring, great, Green Day. And yeah, a lot of great bands. compliments, yeah, from all them bands. Because, you know, you, you, we sort of thought, well, we'll, you know, we'll give this a go, you know, we'll, we'll have a go with it. And, um, and there was so many did you do the full run? bands. We did, it's like I think two we months did, or something, right? Yeah, we, we did a long time. I don't know whether we did a lot, but we did both of them. But I think Joan Jett appeared at one time when we had our, our road crew used to come on the tour bus every day. Because to be honest, everybody was, uh, we were just stoned on the bus for days. It was like being in <laughs> Nam, man. You know, like, Jesus, what field are we in next? You know, I, you know we don't do them tour buses now. I mean, we used to what do, do them hotels too, too much. Well, we used to do the tour. We always had hotels as well as the tour buses, but it was still quite excessive. I mean, you used to get crazy on them buses. It's like Big Brother on wheels, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody starts off all right, and we'd have like American road crews. This is going to be a great tour. We're in about two weeks going, I'm missing my wife, man, and all this stuff. You know, people started to disintegrate. As you were saying earlier on, it's and not for the I, I was, a, touring, I was against it? it, yeah. You know, I didn't like them anyway because I, know I can't sleep in them bunks. It gets on my nerves after a while, especially if you take some. You can't fidget in a bone them. It should be sat at the back going, oh, fuck, another night, no sleep. Well, it feels like you're in a coffin as well, yeah, doesn't it? I just don't get it. I don't like it, you know. Um, even though we had top hotels everywhere as well, you know. Um, but um, it used to get to some crazy moments on them tour buses. You know, mental things. Anybody <laughs> that's been in them, I tell you. And amazing enough, I survived all them better than most. And, you know, I'm just the one that didn't really want to do them kind of things. You know what I mean? I'd rather do it in a people carrier car and just go to the hotel. Check into the hotel at the end of the but, day. Um, but you're seasoned, yeah, Steve. Yeah, you're hardened. Seasoned. 
I've seen, well, we broke tour managers, they had to leave, you know, I'm getting off of this, I can't handle any more of you guys and this man. Because we used to have part, you know, people would be hanging around the boss and you bring them on and they'd go all a little bit crazy as well. It gets political as well, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, I mean, people change, you're living in such a small space together, even though the tour bus looks big on the outside, it's not that big when you've got a road crew and... And the band and all all that kind of thing going on, and it, it, it you know it, it can be very demoralising in a lot of ways. And I don't know why, but it, it does. People change, you know. No matter who you are, they all everybody changes really. You know what I mean? You see different things at different times, and yeah, different arguments or people breaking down. You know, and you're talking about a twenty-four hour thing because after the show, you might be driving overnight somewhere. People are getting up in the night and then there's something going on and another thing, you know, it's all kinds of things. But um, it's very difficult for anybody to live together under those circumstances in a lot of ways, you know. Um, it, looking back, the madness was amazing, really. You know, it's like, like saying the Big Brother things. I always call it Big Brother on Wheels because they all start off on them programmes Going, this is going to be Chipper, nice. Optimistic. And how soon do they change? Within a week, they're fighting with each other. You know, these things start happening. Um, I always think about it, though, when I'm riding the underground in London. If the tube stops for more than a minute or two, I start to think, fuck, what if we end up down here for yeah. 10 minutes, 20 minutes? And I, I would freak out. I think it's, it's more the actual physical space yeah. confinement yeah. that worries me with things like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm a big claustrophobic like that. I always think, why can't I deal with that one? But I can't, you know. I think mainly that's why I move and jump around on the stage. It's like I've got to have this freedom somehow, you know. But that enclosed thing, I, you know. I got the famous Bayswater Hotel, the Columbia. After a heavy night, you know, at the bar, and a lot of people got on this lift. I thought, there's too many getting in this lift. I'd stayed there for six weeks at one time. <laughs> I think people thought I worked there. You know? <laughs> I actually... Stayed there and took old Van Morrison's beer back to my room. He'd left it. He went home drunk. And then I took his beer back. We've got Van Morrison's plastic bags with a beer. <laughs> and um, um, I got in a lift and, um, you know, it, it, it started to go up. And it's one of the moments where you've had too much to drink, you're tired, you just want to get, you know, get to your room. And uh, the lift stopped. Luckily, it stopped halfway. In the end, somebody, we managed to peel the doors open and crawl out. But... Those emotions, the air was getting... The panic sets in. Yeah, and all that. All the scenarios yeah. start playing out. Absolutely, you know. And, and you couldn't move in there, you know what I mean? And it was like, you know, when you've had a lot of drink and, you know, it's late at night, and think, that's even double worse, you know. <laughs> You're not getting a rationale to deal with this. You know? um, but the tour bus is a bit like that, yeah. The bunks, I used to get in them and then I'd be out within about half an hour. You know, I'm going, this is lovely, really. Persuade yourself this is not, you know, and all that. But, uh, you know, I've got to get out and go in the back, you know. And then, you're, you know, not sleeping all night and all that stuff. Next minute, you're on the stage again. But I, I think I've got a constitution of steel in some ways. But I think it's the will and spirit, really. Going back to them old northern Manchester days, that, that toughens you up to deal with this kind of stuff, you know. He said, like, okay, I've had no sleep. But I, I never went on that stage looking off asleep. As soon as I went on the stage, I delivered what I had it's to on. do. Even if it killed me, you know. 
And then you come off, and then you, you still end up at somebody's house and back going, I'm going to, I'm going to the hotel. I'm getting an early night. Yeah. And then, oh, go on then, just one. Then, yeah. Just We'd one. be invited to, um, you know, we've got a table for you in a club. It's all, you know, uh, cordoned off and all that. So we'd be there at something like that. And then somebody would say, like, come to my house, I've got this whiskey and bourbon. It's hard to turn that down because part of the, for me, experience and the joy of life Mm. is when an invitation is extended by someone you might not know and there's a chance there to bond, connect, Mm. have fun. Yeah. You only live once, don't you? Yeah. I'm trying to two-month tours of that, traveling every day, you know, doing the gig and doing that and then sort of not really sleeping and getting... But some people I know in the States go... You know, the text here is a, is a text on, like, a um, great night last night, Steve. I didn't go into work today. I was so tired. And I'm going, so tired. I've got to do it all again tonight. Yeah. And there'd be someone else there going, like, let's You just party. have a trail behind well, you. Not, yeah. <laughs> I'm going, you know, here's another one going, that was another great night. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But these are amazing moments you get to see a lot I mean I was kidnapped in Kansas by two girls I'm driving through wheat fields in the middle of the night and they're going we kidnapped him and I'm thinking they might be serious about this you know what I mean but a lot as of long as you ain't taking like... me to your brother's house <laughs> there's a lot of weird yeah, exactly chainsaws and everything but so there's you know all that kind of side of it it seemed that it's extreme things in life in, a, in an amazing way you know it's part of the tour but you, you have got to be solid and keep together mate. but I mean um, many of those nights you know you knock on somebody's door and the wife would answer and you go oh your husband he's in the taxi behind the bar's cocked what do you mean you know yeah we're here to you were going to try the whiskey in there you know? good times Steve so here's to being solid thank you very much pushing the limits yeah. um, expanding the consciousness and living life. Well, it, yeah, that's where you've got to find life before you die. You know? Death's going to find you, but you've got to find life before you die. And that's the thing. And I've got to say, you know, even though I said myself, I've given it a good go. You know, I've lived to the extreme, you know, and still live to tell the tale, which makes me wonder, you know, if you live that sheltered, normal life, you know, it, it, it's no more good for you than living the life on the outside but you know as a kid I read poetry, poetry and all the poets were crazy you know the Yeats's and the all Blakes. the rest of them yeah. Blake's and all that Wordsworth you know Shelley <laughs> well if he's Peter Shelley I'm Steve Byron that's the thing <laughs> <laughs> and my leg's beginning to hurt sometimes these days as well I'm getting worried <laughs> well cheers on that thanks note. mate thanks so all much for your time you're welcome Fantastic. We've done all right there. We've got quite a bit, haven't we? Well, I'm going out. I'm going to find myself a lover. I'm going to look until I drop. I'll never stop. I won't give up in any way, shape, or form. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.